1: I'm John Dankosky. Today on the program, Mohn, the president and CEO of NPR. It's been a year and a half since he joined the network. We're going to find out what he's learned, how he envisions the future of public radio, and we want to hear from you, too. You can call us at 860-275-7266 with your questions. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Coming up later in the program, a few colleagues of mine from public radio will be joining me in conversation about collaboration between stations and between stations and NPR. But first, let me welcome in Jarl Mohn, the president and CEO of NPR, who joins us from NPR's beautiful studios in Washington, D.C. Jarl Mohn, welcome to the program. Thanks for being here.
2: Well, thanks. Thanks for having me,
1: John. Uh, first of all, before we talk about the future of NPR, I want to talk a bit about your background. You, you're a commercial radio guy. And when people hear your voice, they'll say, yeah, he kind of sounds like a DJ in a, little, in a, in a, in a way. Why don't you tell me about how you got started in radio?
2: My shameful past. My shameful <laughs> past. I, you know, I was in radio for 19 years. I began as a disc jockey uh, when I was 15. I programmed radio stations, uh, managed radio stations, and then I ultimately uh, bought a number of radio stations in Texas and Kentucky uh, before I shifted into the cable television business. So that's kind of my heritage. And then years later, I got very engaged in public radio just as a donor. Uh, a supporter of uh, public radio in Los Angeles and then ultimately on the board there and chairman of that uh, board. So that's kind of how I returned to my roots in radio. And how do how did those roots start? I mean, what
1: made you first say in your life, I want to be on the radio and talk to people?
2: <laughs> well, it was I was actually I made that decision when I was 12. I just loved <laughs> rock and roll and uh, I loved growing up listening to rock and roll radio. Uh, I grew up right outside Philadelphia, so there's a heritage of you know, wonderful rock and roll radio stations, uh, WIBG and WFIL, and I thought it was the coolest thing ever. Um, and I just became enamored with it, and one thing led to another. Uh, and that's, that's kind of how I started. It was just the magic of radio. And still today, the thing that I, I really love about great radio, whether it's what happens on public radio a lot, is those driveway moments. It's magic. You know, the experience of just hearing a story, not having pictures to go with it so that you're – as a listener, you have to kind of complete the picture in your head. I That's always been a big part of it for me, and it's one of the reasons why I like public radio and NPR.
1: Another thing that that is a part of not just your past but your present as well that listeners might be interested in is – um, well, I was watching a, a very interesting documentary about the artist Michael Heiser and his attempt to move a gigantic boulder uh, from a quarry to the L.A. County Museum of Art. And one of the first people interviewed in this um, film is, is Jarl Mohn. And the more I, I read into your, your background, you are a great believer in and a curator of modern art. You, you really believe in, in art and the power to, to change minds. Tell me about uh, that part of your life.
2: Well, it's so interesting that you saw that documentary. It's it's rather esoteric. Very few people saw it. But it's it's a magnificent, monumental work of art at L.A. County Museum of Art. Michael Heiser levitated mass and I kind of got roped into it. The the manager, or actually the director, the CEO of the museum, Michael Govan, is, I think, a visionary in the art world and and a dear friend, and he approached me when they were thinking about this and asked if I I would help fund the project, and we gave them some seed capital to get the thing off the ground. So we ended up getting a lot more credit than we deserve on it. There were far more generous contributors to that project. But I love art. Um, I particularly love contemporary art, uh, and because I spent so many years in Los Angeles, it's kind of my adopted home. Uh, I think that the creativity that's occurring in that city right now is kind of on, on par with what was happening in New York in the 50s and the 60s uh, and what was happening in Paris at the turn of the century. I think it is a creative hotbed unlike uh, almost anywhere else in the world right now. So uh, my wife and I are you know, try to be as supportive as we can of what's happening in the art world there.
1: Uh, We're talking with Jarl Mohn, who's the president and CEO of NPR, and we'll take some of your calls and questions at 860-275-7266 in just a moment. Of course, I think many people wondered when you took this job why you would be interested in running NPR. As as you said, you've owned media companies. You are someone who's a philanthropist and and is able to be a a big player in the art world. Uh, A lot of people looked at the Uh, Financial dire straits that NPR was in, and say, why on earth would someone who's been so successful in business want to take on a job like this, move across the country, and try to fix something that was, in many ways, financially kind of broken?
2: Well, I I think, like you and your colleagues, uh, you know, there at uh, WNPR and uh, from uh, New England that are going to be joining us later in the program, I've always been. A big fan of and supporter of and believer in how important public radio is. So I, and I always felt through all the financial difficulties that this organization had, the content, the programming, the news coverage, the journalism, the public service mission was really terrific and first rate. And I felt as a, as a business guy, I might, uh, you know, I might be able to be helpful. Because I have turned other businesses around, and uh, you know time will tell, but we we had a terrific year after five or six years of uh, losses in the area, of five to six million dollars a year. Our first fiscal year, which ended at the end of september we we showed a bit of a surplus so uh, it it isn't easy it's <laughs> it's challenging, but I think what you do there. Uh, in Hartford, what we do here in Washington and across the country, I think is really important. And so I said, I'll make a commitment of five years. I'll I'll put all my other interests on hold to do this because uh, it, it means a lot to me. What
1: is it about our financial model in your mind uh, that works? And what is it about the financial model that you think needs to be tweaked?
2: Well, I think the thing that works the most or the greatest opportunity is, uh, and a lot of people don't know this. There's this assumption that it's funded by the government. And while the you know the government does give the Corporation for Public Broadcasting funds that are then distributed to public TV and public radio stations, um, some of which can be spent on NPR programming, back to us, uh, a huge piece of it has to do with listener support. And I think people are starting to realize more right now right at this moment in time than ever, that public public journalism uh, is, is more important than it's ever been. Newspapers are contracting. Uh, local television news is really all about fires and crime. Uh, cable television has tended toward ideological points of view or sensational coverage. And so what public radio does has become more unique. Uh, public stations all across the country, you know this because you've made the investment over years um, in Hartford, uh, has become you know, a really powerful powerful and primary source of news and information in communities all across the country. So that listener support, I think, is the secret sauce and what needs to be tweaked that. We need to, uh, in every community across the country, the people that are, uh, you know, very supportive of what's going on with hospitals, with universities, with churches and synagogues, with libraries, with museums, need to understand that public radio in those communities is every bit as important, if not in some cases more important. So it's the strength it's also our weakness. Is there a, a kind of a different pay model
1: that you might imagine? I mean, we, we've we certainly seen uh, public radio veterans who've gone off to start their own podcasts, and they've been very successful with Kickstarter, and, and models that in some ways work very much like the public radio uh, membership model, but are are different because you're able to have um, a different type of relationship with someone uh, when you're asking them directly for money to start something. I mean, do you you envision that NPR and public radio stations need to adapt their model in some way to the way people give today?
2: I think on a local level, uh, stations are going to be experimenting with uh, things and and other ways to have that direct connection with listeners and supporters and contributors, donors. Uh, We at NPR do not go directly to listeners to raise money. All of our efforts in philanthropy and giving are done in concert with and collaborating with our station, our member stations. So we don't have that uh, direct fundraising connection, nor will we. Uh, we, th- we think that that is antithetical to our uh, our partnership with our member stations. But I do think local stations are going to attempt to do more things uh, as podcasting becomes more prevalent, doing fundraising in those podcasts, the stations doing that uh, on, technic- uh, on some of the new digital platforms, whether it's on the web or mobile platforms, uh, raising money that way. I think we're going to have to expand our tool- toolkit and any way we can uh, get our message across to uh, supporters and listeners, uh, I think stations are going to uh, t- experiment with.
1: One of the shifts that we've seen since you took over at, at the head of the network is seemingly an emphasis in radio once again. And it's part of a, a swing that has happened in the media, but it, it's a bigger swing, I think, uh, that's been experienced by, by NPR. As as many people know, not so long ago, we called it National Public Radio, and then NPR started calling itself NPR. And there was a lot of talk about NPR being a digital-first uh, experience. Uh, there's a lot of investment in digital properties, including uh, a player uh, app NPR one, and then when you took over, you talked an awful lot about the power of terrestrial radio stations of actually broadcasting to people. Where do you see this balance right now in in the future of NPR? How much of it is going to be the continuation of good old fashioned radio and how much of it needs to be more investment into a digital space
2: well it 's got to be both, and the real challenge as business people is how do we allocate our resources so that we can do both. Uh, radio still, even today, a lot of people don't know that there's a, there's a mythology around it that people, you know, particularly millennials, do not listen to the radio. Well, Nielsen Audio said in the last seven days, 91% of all millennials listened to terrestrial radio at some point. Um, they don't listen for as many hours as they used to. They used to listen 13 hours or so a week on average, and now they listen about 10, 10 plus hours uh, a week on average. But they still listen. So it's really important not to give that up. There are those, you know, kind of that are firmly in the digital camp that say radio, it's old school. But, you know, technology has always uh, attacked radio. And what I find fascinating is it's the first – people talk about mobile today. Radio is the first mobile technology. It's always been mobile. It's always been able to be with you on the go. But in 1965, uh, there was the 8-track, and then there was the cassette, and then there was the CD, and then there was – CB radio, I don't know if you remember when that was the big threat to radio. Oh, I do. And, <laughs> <laughs> you know, that Breaker 1-9 was going to, you know, put us all out of business. Um, it,
1: it was actually the last time rock and roll radio was cool, too, y'all, but, but I, I digress, yes.
2: <laughs> yeah, so, you know, radio still continues to be and will, I believe, for a long period of time, uh, a great way to reach a mass audience. And, and this is not but, and digital platforms are becoming increasingly more important whether it's whether it's on web whether it's on a tablet whether it's smartphones and that's why we have invested heavily in that technology we have to be we're a content company we do journalism we do programming and we want to reach people that are interested in this kind of uh, programming and journalism and uh, cultural coverage whatever way they want to receive it, whether it's on a smartphone, whether it's a podcast, whether it's on the web, whether it's on a tablet, um, you know, we have to do it all and we have to do it all and we try well. One of the things, though, that, that's come with
1: some of these digital changes is uh, seemingly a brain drain at NPR. And as I know from working closely with NPR, there are many, many talented people who are there, dozens and hundreds of them. But we've seen over the course of the last couple of years, many NPR folks leaving to start their own podcast, going to commercial podcast outlets. And, and that seems to be part of what we're working against, too, is Not just the notion that NPR has to change internally in the way that it delivers programs to people, but also find a way to retain some of the talent that is going to all of these other podcast networks and other ways in which really smart storytellers can get their stories out.
2: Well, yeah, you know, there's a bit of a mythology there, too. There has been some turnover. We have lost people to new technologies. But if we look at it from a really broad perspective of, you know, the media landscape in general our attrition rate at NPR has been really very, very low. The last quarter, it was 3%, 3% turnover. Now, just to put that in context, a typical uh, PBS turnover, my understanding, last stats I saw was about 12%. Typical media company would be 15% annually. And if you're in a a digital world, if you work for a new technology company, the average is somewhere between 18 and 23%, and a lot of that is contingent on when your uh, options vest. If it's four-year vesting, uh, the turnover rate's 23%, and if it's five-year vesting, it's 18%. Surprise, surprise. Uh, So we are at the very, very low end of attrition, and uh, that said, we have lost some talent, but... for every person that leaves, we try to upgrade and hire somebody new and, you know, people that are really terrific. And when you think of some of the young voices on the air, I mean, I just was in the cafeteria this morning and talking to Ari Shapiro. Kelly McEvers has joined, All Things Considered. We opened a Seoul bureau in Korea with Elise Hugh. Brent Bauman is a young, great talent who produces our TED Radio Hour and our new NPR Politics podcast we have a new deputy managing editor for digital news sarah goo who comes to us from the washington post will dobson just uh just joined us on our international desk he comes to us from slate a remarkable young woman named uh, tamar charney comes from michigan uh, public radio as our local editorial lead on npr one and i could go on and on and on and on with all these new great people that have come in so we we don't like to lose anyone but when we do we see it as an opportunity to bring somebody really stellar in. We're talking with
1: Yarrow Mohn, who's the president and CEO of NPR. He joins us today from NPR Studios in Washington. When we come back, we'll get to some of your questions. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter with your questions at Where We Live, or you can call us at 860 275 7266. This is Where We Live. <music> This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankosky. Today we're joined by Jarl Mon. He's president and CEO of NPR. He's joining us today from NPR studios in Washington, D.C. We'll get to some of your calls and questions in just a moment. We got a tweet from uh, our friend Kalila Brown-Dean, who periodically joins us. She's a political scientist here, and, and she has a question for you. She says, what are your plans to emphasize the P in NPR so that its voices better reflect America's increased diversity? This is something we wanted to talk to, uh, talk to you about anyway. We had on some of the members of your diversity team uh, including Luis Clemens, who's NPR's senior editor for diversity. Let's let's listen back to what Luis told us not so long ago.
3: We interview people who are like us. We seek out stories from people who are like us, who are our neighbors, who are, you know, fellow members of the PTA, fellow members of, of a congregation, what have you. Um you really have to push yourself to reach out across your own personal boundaries and speak to people you wouldn't normally speak to. Um, actively seek out stories that you might not be inclined to do so. And that's an effort that has to happen really at every station and across the network. And again,
1: that's Luis Clemens, NPR senior editor for Diversity, speaking earlier on Where We Live. Uh, Yaro Monsu, you hear Luis there. You hear the question from our, our commenter, Kalila Brown-Dean. How do you think NPR is doing at reaching out to a more diverse audience and diversifying its workforce?
2: Well, I think Kalila asked a great question, and it's something that we think about and spend a, a great deal of time considering and, and trying to work on. Uh, the P in NPR for public is very, very important. And we do, as, uh, as a public service organization, have a greater obligation, I think, to reflect the diversity of the country than uh, than a commercial broadcaster does. So in context, I would first say that If you look at us compared to the major newsrooms across the country, whether it's the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, L.A. Times, Washington Post, our numbers are as good as, if not better. If you look at us relative to the average radio station in the country uh, or television newsroom in the country, way outperform. So that's the good news. What's the bad news? The bad news is we really want to hold ourselves to a higher standard, and we think we can do better than that. And we really have an effort to do that. And we're doing it in three or four different ways. We don't think the content and our audience is going to grow unless our staff grows uh, in terms of being more diverse. And that includes people in management. And that includes you know the key decision makers, the executive producers of our shows. If we do that, then it's going to be reflected in the content, the things we make, the shows we make, the programming, the news. And then I think will be able to attract uh, new and more diverse listeners. And, and I would like to emphasize one other thing. Diversity, typically, people, when they, when they talk about diversity, are thinking about race, uh, they're thinking about ethnicity and so forth. But diversity means a lot of other things as well that are very important to us. Geographical diversity, age diversity, uh, different religious and political points of view. We have to think about diversity in all those aspects. And we're focused on it, and we think we've made some great progress, but we aspire to a lot more.
1: When we talk about NPR sounding like America and, and achieving that kind of diversity, it, it gets to a question I, I'd really been wanting to ask you, and I've talked to some of your predecessors about this as well. I, I make no bones about the fact that I was uh, I, I was disappointed in NPR's decision uh, some time ago to cancel the program Talk of the Nation, uh, a, a two-hour Um, Daily talk show That was hosted by Neil Conan And one of the reasons why is Well, not just Y'all because I run a talk show here And I think talk radios Is is really a, a good way To reach out to people But because I feel like a national conversation on any specific topic is something that NPR is able to do that almost no one else could possibly do. I guess I'm wondering, given some of what you you uh, walked into with the job, some of what you've seen now, um, the future of programs like the Diane Reem show as Diane Reem at WAMU, uh, who hosts a national talk show, says she's stepping aside. What do you think the future of talk radio, you know, call in talk radio is with NPR?
2: Well. You know, the Diane Reem show is a great example of a potential opportunity. I mean, Diane has been in the system and on the air and doing a, a remarkable job for 37 years. <laughs> you you just don't go out and find somebody <laughs> and plug them into that and, and expect some great thing is going to happen. Uh, that show and Diane uh, developed over many, many years, and uh, it's not going to be easy to replace her. But I do think... You know, Diane, like many people in the public radio system, began doing what they were doing in their late 30s and early 40s, and she's been at it for 37 years. What we're attempting to do now is find the Diane Reams of the future for today that we can put on public radio and have work with us at local stations and with NPR for the next 30, 40 years or so. That's what what our hope is. That's our aspiration. That's our intent. I do think radio call-in shows – Public, public radio in general, I think, is very, very important, more important now than ever. I agree with you completely that this notion of having a national dialogue is very important, and we have to find ways to continue to do that, whether it's uh, w- whatever happens uh, in terms of the creation of the show that replaces Diane Rehm or whether we end up doing something new and additional um, to add to the lineup. I want to get to some phone calls. Uh, Tim is calling from Portland,
1: Connecticut. Hi there, Tim. You're on with Jarl Mohn.
3: Thanks, John. Thank you, Jarl. Um, Yes. Long-time listener, listened for 35 years. Uh, I'm a sustainer, and I have two questions. Um, The first is your sense of the sustainability of of the financing model, Uh, particularly um, if... When I'm listening to the fundraising times and being a sustainer and hearing during the fundraising episodes that only 1 in 10 support WNPR, of course, I'm curious. I think about you know, the freeloaders who are listening and wonder if part of that is just the ethos that now, not just for the millennials, but everybody who's part of the digital world now just thinks that everything is free, and I don't know what you can do to build up that listener base not shame them, but try to persuade them to support this non-commercial radio with its incredible programs that I use in my teaching all the time. Mm. And then the other question is, um, I've noticed particularly in the last five years, maybe last 10 years, a slow but inevitable sort of commercial creep. Um, You have to have big supporters and they need to have their ad space in effect but it does seem to be creeping in and eating away at the actual content. And how do you control that? Will it increase? How do you nuance it so you, so it doesn't turn into FM radio's wasteland of where most of its content is just simply taken up by by horrible commercials? Hmm. So those are my two questions.
1: Well, Tim, thank you very much. I, I, I appreciate your phone call. See, y'all, this is why I like call on radio. Those are two very good questions from Tim. What do you say?
2: They're, they really are. And Tim, first, uh, thank you for being a sustaining member of WNPR. Yes. That's really very, very important. Uh, and you are right. You know, statistically, the number of people that are listeners that actually become supporters is quite low. It's in the 10 percent range for the average public radio station. And it is something uh, of of great concern. A lot of stations across the country are experimenting uh, and doing a number of things. KQED in San Francisco does a really remarkable thing for listeners that hate the pledge drives. If you become a, subs- a sustaining member, you get a special code, and you can listen on your mobile device or on your computer uh, with- to a pledge-free stream of the audio. And a number of stations across the country are doing that. So that's one little experiment. There are other stations across the country that are trying to get out of the week-long, 10-day long pledge drives and trying to do it all in 24 hours and giving people incentives for doing that. That seems to be working. And then recently, we do uh, an annual uh, fundraising thing here in Washington called Weekend in Washington, where stations across the country bring in uh, donors. And we have. Programs for them uh, and seminars and uh, presentations. and uh, from the University of Chicago, Richard Thaler, who has written books on behavioral, he's like you know leading uh, expert in the world on behavioral this whole field called behavioral economics. He's a big public radio listener, listens to WBEZ in Chicago, and he volunteered to throw some grad students at the pro at the, at the idea of how can we get better participation? Than this twelve percent. So we've connected him with our radio station, our member station in Chicago, WBEZ, and something interesting will come out of that. His thesis, again, I don't know much about. I don't. I know nothing about behavioral economics, but his thesis is: you don't shame people; you do the opposite. You the the, the real trick somehow is to talk about all of the other people that are friends of yours that actually are supporting it, that you end up getting a better response. That's one of his takeaways. Uh, the other question you asked about the uh, you know uh, the creep of uh, you know commercial interests, uh, we did about uh, a year and a half ago increase not the number of messages but the length of them, uh, and un- unfortunately it was, you know the the reason we did we went from ten second credits to fifteen second credits, so an increase of five seconds was a lot of our competitors in the public media space. There are a lot of other entities. People think we do it all in NPR, but we have a whole slew of other uh, programmers uh, that are not us that were selling 15-second credits. So we we were almost one of the last, if not the last, to to make that change. We didn't increase the number of units, but we did go from 10 to 15 seconds. We have no intention now or in in the near or midterm to do anything beyond that. Uh,
1: We're talking with Yarl Mohn, who's the president and CEO of NPR. If you've got questions for him, 860-275-7266. We've got a a few Facebook comments coming in uh, around that same issue. Uh, A number of people, including Russell, tweets that his content is much more important than distribution medium, uh, in his opinion. And as we talk about the content, Yarl Mohn, what have you seen in the journalism that NPR does right now, the ways in which uh it it works for you as a listener and for the network of listeners around the state uh the, the nation and also ways in which you think it can change i mean what are some ways in which you think journalism at npr can can grow in the future
2: well it's a, that is a broad question a great one and it's one we spend a lot of time thinking about i i was just grabbing my coffee this morning i, I got on the elevator with our senior vp of news and it, in the, during the elevator ride, the conversation got so good, we both stepped out into the hallway to continue the conversation about this very, this very topic. I would break it down into three parts. I would say the first thing is uh, the quality of journalism across the country generally uh, at member stations and at NPR is, I think, is very good. It's good workmanlike journalism, and we're, we're doing things that a lot of other people and covering stories a lot of other people aren't doing. But when we're at our best— locally and nationally, that's when you get great storytelling. Great storytelling uh, is time-consuming. It's, it's handcrafted. Uh, it, it, it is not easy. It, it's time-intensive. But when public radio does that right, that's really engaging, and that starts to bring in a lot of other people because it's not then just, this is what happened, you know, who, what, where, when, and why – but you're creating a story and uh, you know we talked at the at the top of the show about why I originally became interested personally in radio was the storytelling aspect and the magic of radio. I think that's when we we really excel and we have to have more moments like that. And the third piece again is to the question of diversity that came up earlier. I think as we get younger voices in the mix, we get different accents from across the country in the mix, different points of view in the mix. I think that adds to this this mosaic of great content. I think I think it makes what we make sound even more interesting and engaging.
1: We're talking with Jarl Mohn, president and CEO of NPR. When we come back from our break, we're going to bring in a couple colleagues of mine from Vermont Public Radio and New Hampshire Public Radio to talk about collaboration between stations and also between stations and NPR. We'll take more of your questions at 860-275-7266 for Jarl Mohn about NPR here on WNPR on Where We Live. This is where we live. I'm John Dankosky. Coming up on tomorrow's show, after another week of presidential primaries and caucuses, our political commentators Susan Bigelow and Ben Duvall will join me and Colin McEnroe on our weekly news roundtable, The Wheelhouse. We'll talk about news from the presidential race and ask this question, could Connecticut's primary actually matter this year? There's a novel concept that's coming up tomorrow. Hope you can join us. Today in the program, Jaromone, President and CEO of NPR, joins us from NPR Studios in Washington, D.C. We've been talking about the journalism of NPR, about the funding model for this network we all love so much. I'm bringing you now a couple of colleagues. John Van Hoosen is Senior Vice President and Chief Content Officer at Vermont Public Radio. Welcome, John. Great to be here. And Sarah Ashworth is news director at New Hampshire Public Radio. Hi, Sarah. Hi, John. Uh, my two colleagues are here, Yarl, because we're working on a project called the New England News Collaborative. And I actually want to g- go through that and talk about it a little bit and then get some of your thoughts, Jarl. But John, explain a little bit what the New England News
4: Collaborative is going to be. So the, it's a great collaborative. We have eight public radio stations in New England who believe that there is a lot more in common in New England than you might think. And so what we hope to do is to gather ourselves together around four key topics, energy, environment, climate change, uh, culture, and infrastructure – that's actually five – and write stories and pull ourselves together and offer those stories not just to ourselves but to national shows. And enlighten us ourselves about the issues that are deeply, have deep common interests here in New England.
1: And, and Sarah, what's exciting to you about a collaboration like this?
0: Well, we were joking yesterday. We were calling, you know, we were saying it's the state of New England in some ways. And it's surprising to a lot of us, I think, that this kind of networking collaboration doesn't exist yet uh, among New England stations. So for me, it's the idea that on New Hampshire airwaves, we would love to have a story coming out of Hartford, coming out of Connecticut, because so many of our listeners know the state, know the region, and an issue like the environment related to the environment or climate change is going to be very si- similar to what's happening in New Hampshire. So it's also a way for us to have more regional stories on the air in Morning Edition and All Things Considered.
4: If you think about what it is that we share, you know, power lines come through from Canada to southern New England, uh, the Connecticut River, is a we both uh, know we, it. We both know we it. We and all know it very well. we Share the river, <laughs> sort of, and uh, you know cultural changes that are happening, and we we talk together a lot about infrastructure getting to and from northern New England to southern New England on our interstate highways and other highways can sometimes be a challenge.
1: Mm. Well, so, Yarlman, what do you think about this model? I mean, stations like ours coming together, we're getting a grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting to, to put this together, and it's a, it's a project that's just starting. Does this point to some of the future of NPR that you see?
2: Absolutely, I think it's fabulous. I love it. And uh, w- when we look across the country and we see other pockets where this is uh, is occurring, uh, California has had a tradition of the public stations uh, kind of pooling resources uh, and covering what's happening in California, which is its you know what the eighth or seventh largest economy in the world. its it's its, its own place. It's happening in Texas now. With a, a daily one-hour show, the Texas Standard, which is uh, you know produced with San Antonio, Houston, Dallas, and uh, Austin, Texas, uh, and in the Midwest in the agricultural states, Harvest Harvest Media, similar type of thing, uh, it, you know historically the idea was the network NPR uh, creates content that is then transmitted or uh, to and distributed to the stations which broadcast it. It's one way. And over the years, as each of these newsrooms, public service journalism has grown across the country, more and more and more pieces. If you listen to NPR at any morning, any morning or afternoon, you hear pieces from our member stations that are fed back into the network and distributed nationally. But the next layer, and the one that 's really fascinating is station to station where what you 're doing in New England um, is and you know the the examples I just mentioned, I think that is you know the latest iteration of you know, the great quality public service journalism that can occur. And, and of course, the thing that we have that a lot of uh, – that almost any other
1: news network doesn't have is if you add together all these stations, you you end up with something like 1,500 reporters uh, across the country who can – I would assume, dig up more interesting information, tell better stories than almost any network out there, but it's just a matter of organizing it in some way. I mean, what do you see as NPR's role in all this? Because we're going to try to get together out here and get grants to do this, but what does NPR do to pull this whole thing together?
2: Well, it's, it, is one, it is probably, of all the things that we're doing here, this is more than anything the linchpin and the centerpiece of our whole uh, journalism strategy. The number – I've heard the number vary anywhere from 1,500 to 1,800 uh, reporters in the system. Uh, And the idea of stitching that group of people together – and when you think about trying to harness the intelligence and the creativity and the innovation and the idea generation from this group of people, I think it's remarkable. I was doing some math on the back of a a napkin one day and said, you know, if each one of those people just came up with one killer four-minute piece – You know, we wouldn't have, you know, a year, a year. We wouldn't have enough time to put them all on the air. Uh, In terms of what we're doing, Mike Oreskes, who I I think you all have met, who is our senior VP of news, I hired Mike from the Associated Press. He was there for seven years. There were many reasons why uh, I really thought Mike would would be perfect for NPR and for public radio. But one of those was with the Associated Press, he had a a network of 1,000 reporters across the country he knew we at NPR and I think public radio had been talking about collaborative journalism for a long period of time. Everyone intellectually bought into it. No one really quite knew how to make it happen practically and One of the many reasons I hired Mike was he's done it, he knows how it's done, and I think a lot of great things are starting to happen now as a result John well the uh, you know the public service
4: collaboration among the stations in NPR is like extremely valuable. Uh, Vermont Public Radio produced a program on the rise and record of Bernie Sanders, for example, called Becoming Bernie. And when NPR um, um, shared that uh, digitally on NPR.org, the uh, thousands and thousands of people who otherwise wouldn't have read or listened to that program were able to do it. And the question that I have is, so as more people find – uh, information and news in various different ways on different platforms, as Jarl, you just mentioned a little while ago, this fraction fracturing of how we get our media. How will that partnership continue? How will NPR, do you think, promote these partnerships on, I don't know, smaller, more diverse uh, platforms?
2: I don't know that we actually – are promoting individual pieces of content. I think the 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 answer to that is that piece that you're referring to is something of high interest to people all across the country because this this in, this phenomena of a guy that no one initially thought really had any shot. He was just you know, wanting to, I guess, keep uh, keep the dialogue uh, going uh, in the Democratic Party so that. Uh, uh, to keep Hillary Clinton perhaps, you know, uh, more progressive in the conversation, it, it be, it's become this amazing phenomena, and you covered and you created something of vast interest and, and importance uh, to the country. So I think it all boils down to all of us, us nationally, you folks, uh, regionally or locally producing great content, and the the really wonderful stuff People are going to find. And we, we can't – when something really great is there, we can promote it and will promote it because it serves all of our interests, our public service mission and our our goals of getting more people to listen uh, and engage and think. Sarah?
0: Yeah, and and actually coming just a couple of weeks off of the New Hampshire presidential first-in-the-nation primary – You know, also our top story out of the primary was a Sanders-related story as well, but it was a a digital piece that was buoyed by NPR's Facebook page. Those kinds of collaborations really help us. Um, But my question that I had too was, looking back at primary night, it struck me we were at NHPR, and, and it was great. WNPR aired NHPR's live coverage of the primary, but that night, you know, we we have all of these resources, weeks of planning. And I know that that night, we're doing a live broadcast, WBUR is doing a live broadcast, WGBH is doing a live broadcast, NPR is doing a live broadcast. We're all in about a 15-mile radius of each other. <laughs> all of these resources that go into producing three to five hours of live coverage, it just seemed to me, how can we all work together somehow in the future to save on people and money and resources and um the tremendous amount of money and time that it that it takes to put these together, I guess you know. How do you think about those uh, type of collaborations with stations and the network?
2: Well, I would hope we would do. Uh, that's a it's a wonderful question that you raise. I, I would tell you that I am not smart enough to know the answer to that, but <laughs> I I think we have a guy in house that is uh, with Mike Oreskes, and I think it's the it's a great topic to raise with him. Uh, we always believe at the essence, at the at the core of this whole notion of collaborative journalism, is there are great people, you know, in almost every one of these radio stations across the country that have wonderful ideas. And if we're all doing separate things, it's you know we're not going to benefit. It's going to we're going to spend a ton of money, uh, and we're not going to get the best result because we're just doing individual pro projects. So I personally don't know the answer to your question. But I think you probably have a great sense of it. I think, you know, John and John probably have a great sense of that as well. And I think Mike does. And you folks talking together on this, uh, about this, uh, I I think only great things are going to come from that. I would tell you uh, the one thing I'm 100 percent certain of is that there is a very uh, open and warm reception to the idea here. We really think that that is important for uh, for public radio.
4: So the uh, one of the questions that I had is regarding NPR One, which in a way is a collaboration between NPR and stations with NPR content and station content that you can access on demand. Um, where is the that in the priorities, your priorities? Where would you put it on the scale of priorities and development for a national audience for uh, this new platform?
1: And, and I'll just say to our listeners, for people who don't know what NPR One is, it was kind of as envisioned as a Pandora of public radio where you download an app and it's going to give you a stream of some interesting recent stories that are going to be stacked in some way to your tastes. It's something you can download right now and a lot of people are using it, Jarl, but to, to to John's question.
2: Well, we love NPR One. It is a, it's a phenomenal technology. I think on all the research that we have seen and looked at for, uh, you know, the way, ultimately the lens that we have to look at any of these things, through is how do our 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 customers, how do our users, our fans, our listeners, um, how do they respond to it? And it's been off the charts. It's been remarkable. as a powerful, powerful tool. The ability to skip, go back, save a story to listen for later, uh, or share it with somebody. All the you know those those social network tools are hugely important. So on our list of priorities, it's it's rather important. I would think of. Uh, particularly as it relates to the digital properties, I think it's got more potential than any other thing that we're doing. So making sure that our news magazines, um, Morning Edition, all things considered, uh, are first rate and the newscasts are first rate, and we're doing great coverage of what's happening in the world. But I would say it's right there immediately after.
1: I I think one of the questions about, about the way we do this as a network, though, is The programs that feed something like NPR One or even the NPR website that you can download so many great stories from, we're creating those... ...for a linear broadcast stream. I and mean, we're doing them for the same reason you and I both started in the business, y'all, to, to weave magic on the radio live in front of thousands and thousands of people. But then we're distributing it to them in all these different ways that they weren't initially conceived for, if you take my point. And so that's why NPR and many others have gotten into podcasting, trying to specifically create things meant to go into people's headphones when they want to listen... How much do you think NPR is going to be able to, to to devote monetarily, editorially, to new types of properties, new types of products that will meet people where they are, as opposed to repurposing content meant to be heard live on the radio to be heard on their iPod?
2: Well, I was just talking to Scott Montgomery, who you know oversees our digital news uh, initiatives probably two days ago. Again, almost all the conversations I have are in our cafeteria. We were talking about <laughs> earlier. I was having lunch. He sat down and we, we uh, just struck up a conversation. A huge percentage of the content that we have on NPR.org is not repurposed at all. It's original digital content because just repurposing uh, the content is not going to be effective. Uh, some people will use it. Some people will like it. But that's not content designed for the platform. Uh, so that's one thing I would like to say uh, and we we have to devote more and more of our resources to uh, create programming that's just for the platform. We have a number of podcasts right now. our uh, NPR politics podcast is not designed for air. We have repurposed it the other way. It's gone the other way now. Uh, Sections uh, from that podcast about uh, Justice Scalia's passing were then played in All Things Considered. Uh, And the other thing that, you know, that that show is not designed for broadcast. It's designed uh, for podcast. And I want to add one other comment about NPR One, just because it's really important with you and your colleagues there. One of the stickiest things, the things that really make People use NPR One and come back with great frequency and extend their listening. Is the local content, the local newscast, and so one of our biggest challenges have been stations like yours. The three of you have been very progressive, very proactive, uh, and have engaged. But not everybody in the system has. We hired uh, Tamar Charney to become our local uh, editor on NPR One to encourage more stations. We really, we really see higher usage when our local member stations uh, participate.
1: I need to get to a quick phone call here from Ben in Wallingford. And Ben, quickly, if you would, we're running a little low on time.
3: Hi. um, I just wanted to say that a lot of us depend on NPR for independent news, but it's it's hard to imagine it being independent when it's followed. uh, A news story about climate change is followed immediately by a promo for natural gas. So I know a lot of environmental groups have been pushing you to drop your sponsorship from natural gas. Is there any motion on that front?
2: Well, first I would tell you, we have an absolute firewall, an absolute firewall. There is absolutely not one iota of influence from any of our corporate underwriters in the content and the journalism and the news. I've been here 20 months. There's not been one instance where a corporate sponsor came to me and said, "You have to talk to someone in the newsroom." I would tell you, and, and, and my colleagues here, uh, you know, from you know uh, New England, that uh, these public radio stations would tell you the last thing anybody ever wants to do is try to tell a journalist what to do. If we attempted in any way, if I attempted in any way to try and shape a story or or uh, or a climate change because of a corporate sponsor, I mean they would they would tar and feather me they'd be they'd run me out of the building uh, it, it there is absolutely no influence and i would also say this about corporate sponsorship very important point there is no advocacy at all these people give us money to support our public service journalism mission and there is no influence and there's no advocacy message whatsoever Uh, Sarah, quick
0: last question. Yeah, I have a quick question, just something we're wrestling with at NHPR. We're making all of these local investments in digital content. We're bringing in digital journalists, and we're doing what we think are really cool projects, but then we're not really making money off of all of these digital investments yet. And I guess, how would you say for local stations to be thinking about how much and how should you be investing in digital, you know, thinking what's realistic over the next few years?
2: Well, I, I don't know what the ex- what the number would be or what the percentage would be. I, I, I applaud you for innovating. I applaud you for investing in that and, and trying new ideas. Uh, I spent the 16 years prior to coming to NPR as a venture capitalist doing early stage seed investing in digital media companies. So I have uh, – I invested in 43 companies. And – it's it's always a tough call. Where do you where do you turn the the dial up and where do you turn it back? Uh, and all I would say in general, and this is going to just sound like pablum, <laughs> is you have to you have to pick two or three priorities that you really believe in and experiment with them and see if they work. Odds are that all three will not work. Maybe you get a break and one does and shows signs of life allocate more resources to it, but I I can't be any more specific than that other than applauding your effort, and I'm delighted. You know, a lot of people won't make that investment and won't experiment and won't try things and therefore won't be able to hit on, you know, the secret magic formula that works ultimately.
1: We just have one minute left. What gets you most excited about waking up and doing this job every day?
2: (laughs) The people I work with. I, I, you know, your colleagues there, you, uh, we have a wonderful group, a remarkable group of people. It's very different for me. I've come out of the commercial world. And so, so many of the people I've worked with are either excited about, you know, inventing something new, whether it's in the digital space or on the commercial side of the business, making a whole lot of money. I love working with people that care about journalism. I love working with people that care about informing the people uh, and, and are doing it for all the right reasons. And that for me personally, is, is powerful and exciting. Uh, Mohn, President and
1: CEO of NPR, joined us today from NPR studios in Washington, D.C. Y'all, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. And thank you also to my colleagues in the New England News Collaborative. We're just kicking this off, and we're going to be telling you more on WNPR about it. John Van Hoosen from Vermont Public Radio. Thank you, John. You bet. And Sarah Ashworth from New Hampshire Public Radio. Thank you so much, Sarah. You're welcome. Coming up at ten thirty this morning, we're just getting word that we're going to be bringing you NPR coverage of President Obama's plans for the future of Guantanamo Bay. That special coverage coming up at ten thirty this morning. For from NPR on WNPR, a program produced by Lydia Brown and Tucker Ives. Kyon Wolf is our technical producer. Heather is our digital editor. The executive producer of Where We Live is Katie Talarsky. I'm John Dankowski. Thanks for joining us.